it's a sports show with uh, oh, Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon, and they talk about sports. But the part that's kind of neat is they show the topics in brief that they're going to talk about. And it's more or less a hodgepodge. It's a, it's a sports hot take show. And so I have a, this is a PTI episode. I, I don't have one thing. I have a hodgepodge. And maybe one approach would be if I was going to follow the PTI model, we would go down this in order. And there'd be a timer on the bottom, four minutes, three minutes, and until when we're done. But I'm a little bit tempted to let you guys pick what order you want to talk about these in. So we, the categories are, I should have said, the big inheritance, what we need power for, leader versus mission, four small things of living in Babylon. Which one do you want to talk about first? Anybody have a, you get to only choose one. I mean, any one person gets a choice once. What do you want, Renee? Four small things, all right, turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter um, 30. Remember a little while ago we talked about the sayings of Agar, and this is one of the sayings of Agar that we did not talk about, but it's kind of one of my favorites. And it starts at, um, where is it? Uh, there, verse 24. So Proverbs 30, 24. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summer. Conies are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. My footnote says that a coney is probably a rock badger, so a little woodchuck of rocks. Uh, verse 27, locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. And a lizard can be caught with a hand, yet is found in king's palaces. Four things are small. The ants, the conies, the locusts, and the lizard. And the ants, they store up. The conies live in the rocks. The locusts advance in ranks. And the lizard can be caught, and yet it lives in the king's palace. So what is the, what do you think this, this would be teaching us from the Bible? What are the principles that you could draw out from this material? You're the Sunday school teacher for your fourth grade girls class and you need to explain to them what this is in the Bible for, what would you say? What do you think? What do you think? Any ideas? What, what are the big ideas that you would bring out of this material? Obviously God is using his creation to teach us something. Okay. Size doesn't really matter in some things. The, the small and insignificant looking things can still make a big mess or do a lot of damage. 
Okay, so things that are small yet amazingly impactful. What other thoughts might you have from this passage? I was thinking that, uh, <clears throat> that because it says they are wise, it is that I think that though they are small, they're wise enough to follow and do what God has created them to do. So their behavior, their instincts that God gave them uh, demonstrate wisdom, right? Their wisdom of preparing advance. The, are, are all of the four regarded as wise, right? The, 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 is, it, is it just the ants that are wise? So four things that are small, but they are wise. And so in that sense, then the ants are wise, the um, conies are wise, and the locusts and the lizard. So there's a measure of wisdom to each one of them. The ants, what is the good part about the ants? Is they store up, right? That's the main point. What's the big deal with the conies? Why, what's the commendation for the rock badger? What's their claim to fame or... Why is the author pointing at them? A safe home? They choose a difficult place, rocky places. They make their home in a place that's harsh, but it benefits them. So they embrace the harshness of their environment, and it winds up protecting them, I think, is a way. So then what's the positive attribute of the locusts? Yeah, they, they advance in ranks. There's an organ, There's a thoroughness of working together that devastatingly devastates the field, but nevertheless, there's a, um, an incredible amount of what appears to be intentional cooperation, right? There are the many, many, many small bites from small animals destroys and devastates the crop. So the impact of lots of little things adds up. Right? That, that's a, maybe a key way to think about it. So what's the big deal about the lizard? I'm imagining a small little, a chameleon of the kind you see around Florida, not a, an iguana, but you know, the little ones that jumping around all over. What's the deal with them? I think they get in impossible places. It's impossible to keep them out of everywhere because because of their size and shape, they just find ways to get in. So they're, they're easy to catch. You can catch them by the hand, with the hand, but they live even in king's palaces. And... Uh, so they're just sneaky, right? Maybe that. But what's the positive attribute of them? What would you, any grasp on? What's the, uh, how should we be like a lizard? Um, I kind of think maybe the point is it's a king's palace. So they're in a place of influence. They're around people in situations that matter. And um, there was a parable of, that Jesus talked about that it keeps slipping in and out. I can't remember. But um, the flip side is they're always prevalent. So you don't, this is not an animal that's only in the king's palace. It's everywhere. It's abundant. You can, you can, so what's the point for us? Maybe that we're out and about, but don't discriminate, right, on who we are with or, you know. 
Other thoughts about what's the commendation about these little lizards? What came to me is, oh, I'm in the king's palace. There's, to me, a level of protection. I may be seen, I may not be seen, but I'm in a place of safety, I'm in a, I'm in a place of protection. Um, maybe the king is keeping me there because he likes me. Other um, attempts to unravel this poser? I don't know about King's Palaces, but I know in Florida, and people generally didn't worry about chasing away the little lizards because they eat insects. So there may be an aspect to the fact that their contribution is ultimately sort of positive. Hmm. Any other thoughts? I. I um, made this for a little while, or at least at one time in my, this was the motto of my company, that this little passage, that my software company, we were going to be as harmless as a lizard. Yes, you could get rid of us, but we were so not harmful that we got the privilege of being in places that, um, so from a, from a business standpoint, what that meant was I wasn't going to copyright my software. I wasn't going to make them sign agreements. I just made it super easy. It all belongs to you. You're just hiring me. I'll do whatever you want. You can fire me tomorrow. I just made myself as, as harmless as these lizards. They could have swept me away, but because I was so thoroughly harmless and trustworthy, I was privy to the conversations of kings. I really was, I was part of the heart dumps of the executive many a time. And so it was just kind of a, I think that there's part of that, that this, the idea is they are a pest maybe, but you could get rid of them if you wanted to, but why bother? They're not hurting anything, just leave them alone. There's that. Maybe, maybe we should be harmless to our neighbors and, uh, not a threat. I don't know. That's how I interpret it. So those are four things that are small, and yet they have wisdom. They they prepare. The ants are studious, or diligence, a better word, not studious. They're diligent, and the uh, the rock badgers found a place to live that nobody else wants to be, and it's a safe place for them, and the locusts work together, and those lizards sneak around, and nobody cares. So maybe. All right, that was that one. PTI number two, who wants to pick the next one? Okay, what we need power for. All right, so that is in Ephesians chapter three. <clears throat> if you want to turn there. If I, uh, before you read the text, what do you think you need power for? If you were going to ask somebody, uh, don't look in your Bibles. If you were, if you were going to ask somebody on the street or in a, in a church, a church conference, right, you see a bunch of people from a lot of different churches and say, what do you need power for in your, in your Christian life? What would you answer? What would be typical answers, Pat? To resist Satan. What would be another thing you need power from God for? To live a godly life, what would be another? What are some other possible? You know, if we're playing that one game where they they pull the people, and the top answer is Family Feud. 
Yeah. Okay, you need power to share the gospel? Yeah. DJ? Okay, to be an effective witness? For sure, we need power for all those things. Any other guesses? So, in Ephesians 3, let me find it here. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. Um, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, Paul says, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derived this name, and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. Okay, so Paul is praying that we would have strength, that God would strengthen us with his power, right? Through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what do we need power for according to that? I pray that you'll have power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And he goes on, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's interesting to me that I need God's power in my inner being in order to grasp how much he loves me. That's a surprising thing. I don't think it would have made the family feud list, right? We wouldn't have thought of that. But we need his power. It's too great for us to get how much Jesus loves us. It's too great. We need his power in order to grasp it. It's almost like unto how, remember when uh, Moses wanted to see God, and God says, you can't, it would kill you. And so he covers him up in the rock and then lets him see that as he passes by. And, uh, and, and so in a sense, we need God's power in order to be able to survive the understanding of how much he loves us. We need his power. So it's a power to get it, but I think it's also we need the power to to survive it, to take it in. It's so great. It's such a great love. Isn't that something? Kind of a surprising thing that we need power for. All right. Who would like to pick the next one? Donna. Living in Babylon, you got me, rats. Okay. This is a ethical dilemma question. And any similarity to the persons in my life that this may pertain to are purely coincidental. And the names have been changed to protect the innocent and all that stuff. Daniel lived in Babylon. He was uh, a prisoner of war. Right? They took him from his family and made him and they trained him in all the wisdom and knowledge of the Babylonians, along with his friends. Uh, Mordecai was skilled and trained as an administrator in the 
city of Susa, working underneath that king, what's his name? Uh, Esther's husband. Was it Xerxes? I didn't think it was. Ahasuerus or yeah, has you wear us or something. It's hard to pronounce, but yeah. And um, and Joseph, in a similar kind of way, it wasn't Babylon, but Joseph was uh, an administrator in all of Egypt. And so, but Daniel's the, the classic case is he lived in a culture that was anti-God and promoted all kinds of horrible things and he was promoted because of his integrity and effectiveness how do you how do you do that without what looks like compromise how could he he must have and I'm arguing from silence I suppose but he must have overseen and administrated things that he would not have liked right a um I don't know keeping track of all the non-kosher foods that everybody ate because he didn't he didn't participate in himself but he was an administrator he was regarded as loyal to the king that he couldn't ultimately be loyal to really and yet he was so so uh, suppose somebody is in uh, has a role in the school musical. Just suppose, and one of the one of the lines in the musical uses cuss words, and there's there's a whole host of layers of words, right? There's some words that we would never ever want to say, uh, like uh, use the names of the Lord in vain, right? That would be like super top of the list not to say, and I suppose there's another. A category of words that are especially offensive culturally like the n-word or um, other racial epithets those are pretty nasty right and then there's a bunch of uh, really naughty words that if you want to get r-rated you would just say these horrible words the four-letter ones right all those and then there's another category of words that are like cussing you know like you just add emphasis you know, I don't want to I don't want to, I'm going to try to get the blank out of here. You know, you, you, you kind of use those words. And then there's a whole bunch of Christian versions, modifications of those, right? That is another layer less offensive, you know, like golly gee, instead of using the name of the Lord in vain, right? It's, or what is a good grief? Is that what Charlie Brown says to get, to, to use a word? So, so you understand the spectrum. What's the answer? If you were a high schooler and you were in a play and they want you to recite a line that's part of your script that would cause you to say a phrase that you would never use in your personal life because you've chosen not to cuss like that, do you not? participate in the play? Do you decide not to say the line and make it a condition? I'll be in the play if I can rewrite that line. Do you say, well, it's just the character. It's not really me. I'm just reciting what the author said. Or do you just, who cares and doesn't care? What, what would you, what, what 
biblical principles, wisdom, would you bring to this? I think this is a microcosm picture of living in Babylon, right? This is, are you going to be excellent or um, non-participatory? Or, you know, you understand, right? There's, this, this is, you realize that we just opened a can of worms that takes semester after semester of college to figure out. I mean, we're not going to solve all the problems. But you understand the dilemmas, right? The, the questions are, when am I transforming culture? When am I honoring culture? When am I resisting culture? Is it Christ against culture? Is it Christ? Yeah. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I need to get this on the tape. Sorry. Take my thing. As you explained your, the situation and you described the people involved, it was very interesting to me the words you chose to use. You said Daniel because Scripture shows us Daniel, but Daniel's name in Babylon was Belteshazzar. He was named after a god as were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who actually had very strong Jewish names, but we always know them now by their Babylonian names. And when we say those names, we are honoring Babylonian gods. So it's fascinating how you choose language. Language can have meaning as a curse word. It can have meaning as a dialogue or the reporting of a play. I'm finished speaking now. <laughs> well, today's um, <clears throat> lesson for the juniors was about Daniel and the three young men as they're taken. And not only are their names changed, but the king's servant who was in charge of them was supposed to give them special food to eat, and they didn't want to eat it. And it doesn't say in there what was wrong with it, but I'm guessing it was probably pork or because, or other non-kosher foods. But so in, in Sunday school, we, we talked about the fact that they knew they weren't supposed to eat certain things, but the way they went about challenging authority was respectful. I mean, they could have just said, I'm not eating your stuff or made a big deal of it, or they could have done a lot of things. But Daniel's thing is, hey, you know, why don't we try this other thing? Let's just do a little test for 10 days. So he found a way to get around. He, he, he found a way to do what he knew was right before God and still keep them. It wasn't that big of a deal. Let's try it for test 10 days. If it doesn't work, okay. And God blessed that. Later on, though, in future tests in his life, he was told not to pray anymore, and he did, and he got thrown in, in the lion's den for that. So I think maybe there's sort of sometimes of, and I, and I don't know that the name thing, even though they were pagan names that they were given, I think they were wise enough by God to 
pick which battles to fight. And a way, especially in the first instance with the food, they found a way to do what was right and not make enemies, and God worked it all right because in the end of the 10 days, they were healthier and better off than all the others. And when they were done with their training, they far exceeded all of the other servants in their wisdom and understanding. So God blessed them and made them successful in spite of the fact that this was a pagan country and a pagan king. And later they would be asked to do some things that were even more wrong than the food. I don't know. I think we, we depend on God for wisdom to know which battles to actually stand up strongly and which battles to find a way around. Any other thoughts on that? It's a complicated, it's a complicated thing, and I think we need to give each other room to work it out and uh, not necessarily agree with us all the time. And um, it's a, I think principles of not um, Daniel purpose in his heart not to defile himself, and there was a line he wouldn't cross. But when a person crosses lines, oh, I'll never go farther than that, like in politics. If you were going to be a politician, a Christian politician today, you would have to, if you're going to do anything that's going to help our country, you're going to have to compromise in order for decisions to get made. Otherwise, it's just always gridlock all the time. And so can a Christian compromise and say, okay, at least for now, um, just to get past this spot, let's just make it illegal for abortions after 10 weeks or whatever the number. And that would, you know, it's our inability to compromise on those things that keeps us at total loggerheads in culture. And so I, I'm not advocating any backing away of a pro-life position. I'm just saying it's you can't really insist that every person who's in government is a Christian. You know, that, that won't work either. And you can't, you can't not let somebody be a school teacher because they're a Mormon. You, you, you can't do that in a pluralistic world. And so it's super complicated. And, it's, and for anybody who says it's simple, that's the danger, right? That, those are the ones to watch out for, I think, if you simplify it to a formula. It's complicated. It's hard. So I don't, I don't know. Some, in a lot of it's culture, right? Some families, some parts of the world, that language isn't even cuss word. You know, it's, it's just what you're used to and what your sensitivities are, where your background is. But living in Babylon is a really big challenge, and that's what Jesus tells us to do is live in the world but not of the world. And then also, finally, the reason I use the name Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is only so you'd know who I was talking about. <laughs> I didn't. I don't know if I'd have known that. I don't think they would have known. So that's what that one means. All right, we got three more. Pardon the interruptions. I should have said, okay, this is uh, what I wish I'd have said this morning. Or another thing I should have said this morning. One of the things I wish I would have said this morning is another one of the yokes that we're prone to do as people is relationships, um, marriage relationships and family. And that you can, as a parent, um, be so, so burdened by 
the success and viability of your children and grandchildren that you lose rational thinking, right? You, you, can, you can live vicariously. Have you seen the sports dad who just can't stand that his kid's not the quarterback? Or, you know, that you, your kids have to succeed in a certain way so that you're important in it. And what it winds up doing is it shreds the parent-child relationship because it, it loads it with so much pressure. Your child cannot be your savior. You, your child can't make it so that you're okay. Or even your spouse, the same thing. Oh, if only I found the perfect love, then my life would be meaningful. And so you find this perfect person, and then you marry them and find out they're not perfect at all. And, and then they change. And, and, um, and so life, so if you burden another one of the ways that you can be unequally, or a yoke that brings fatigue and, and weariness and burden, is the idea that a person, a human being, can meet all your needs. It's, it overloads the marriage. If your spouse has to save your soul, they'll never measure up. So that was one of the things I wish I'd have said. The other thing I wish I'd have said is, not only does the unbeliever, does Jesus say, come to me and I will give you rest, not only does Jesus say that to the unbeliever, he says that to believers too. Believers, come to me, always come to me and I'll give you rest. So I wish I would have emphasized that, but I got distracted trying to think of a non-person in our church's name and thought of Joe. Ugh, All right, so that's what I wish I'd have said. Two left. Got time. Leader versus mission. Okay, this is the idea. I was assigned in my spiritual formation group to to think about persons in the Bible who were as a, one of the characteristics of their leadership was in the Bible that they valued the mission that they were leading towards more than their own leadership itself, which is a pretty big ask, really, when you think about it, that you would have a leader who so committed to the end goal, so the vision that was shared, that it didn't matter whether they were part of the getting the end goal. It was that the mission mattered more than themselves. And certainly the Lord Jesus is a good example of that, right? Because he, on the, in the garden, he begged God for a, a release. Is there a different way? Is there any way I could not do this? But not my will, yours be done. And so Jesus actually himself, for the sake of obeying the Father and completing his work, was crushed, and so he received all the consequences of his obedience. So, so, but Jesus is a particularly perfect leader, obviously, and partly because his mission is so uh, monogen—I don't know—one of a kind. What's the word for that? But um, yeah, the point is that he—he's the only savior. So he's always a perfect example. But sometimes that's that that's that's too high of an example for us the other person i thought of can you think of anybody in the bible who would be an example who did you think of john well i was <clears throat> i was thinking of moses because even when the even when god offered to make him the great nation he said but these people we i care about we 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 know you care about these people as well and we don't want to make things look bad in to other nations. So, yeah. So when Moses interceded for the people, 
in that place. DJ. Yeah, I was thinking of David. Um, he wanted to build the temple, but God said that he wanted someone that's not a man of war, so his son Solomon. But even then, he was very enthusiastic. He gathered the people, urged them to bring offerings, something that they could help to build the temple. So he was very committed to the mission. Yeah, that's a really good example because he could have just whined that he wasn't the one and complained, but he actually said, okay, well, if I'm not, what can I do to make it happen anyway? And so he expended a lot of his personal resources. Yeah, Doug? Uh, I was thinking of uh, Abraham when he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, knowing that God had promised he would be the father of many nations. Yeah, put your own self on the line for sure, all the way. The one that I had thought of was maybe, um, I won't, we won't look it up, but it's in Philippians chapter 1. But when Paul says that um, there are people who are preaching the gospel just to get him in trouble. Actually, he had enemies who wanted him to get in more trouble. So they would preach the gospel that Paul preached so that Paul would receive even more persecution. So not only were there motives, I mean, sometimes I suppose in the world of churches that preachers get competitive with other preachers and say those other people are trying to steal my flock or you know get a greater level of influence or have a bigger footprint than I've got and they get all upset that's be sad enough but in this case it wasn't that Paul was envious of losing converts to some other congregation it was that this group was actually intentionally misrepresenting Paul to get him in trouble but by so doing, they were actually proclaiming the gospel. And so Paul actually says the words, whether by false motives are true, I rejoice that the gospel is preached. So even though they were preaching the gospel out of bad motives to get him in trouble, Paul was able to see the value of the gospel being preached as greater than his own agenda. And that's a really cool reminder to all of us that that um, is it really possible for a, a charlatan, or a phony, a, a person who's not morally upright to share the gospel in a way that would cause people to be converted? And the answer is, he sure is, because there isn't anybody who's not that way at some level, right? And there isn't any minister of the gospel. There's not a single one of us who shares the gospel with our neighbors who is ourselves a perfect vessel for such a message but we are a perfect vessel because Jesus has made us his vessel and it's the perfection is not in the in the pipe it's in the water and Jesus is the truth and he's the perfection and so we can we can be comforted that God will share the gospel or have the gospel grow in other people's lives in spite of us not because of us so I thought it was a pretty illustration of a leader, Paul, who saw the gospel as more important than even his own comfort. He was in prison and persecuted because of these kinds of false um, attacks. Okay? So that was what that one was. So then that leads us finally to the, the big inheritance. And so if you want to look in Ephesians chapter 1, a minute... <clears throat> And uh, 
somebody pointed this out to me a little while ago and I just thought it was pretty neat. And I shared this with the board last meeting. Ephesians 1, and um, well, we start at verse 15, but the payload is in verse 18. So, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And then verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So the phrase I want to focus on in verse 18 is this, that you may know the hope which he has called you, at comma, in my translation, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whose inheritance are we talking about? Who's the owner of the inheritance? way it reads <clears throat> in the New American Standard, it would be Christ. It would be, his, we would know his inheritance in the saints. So the owner of the inheritance is Christ, I think is what you're saying. Did you, did I hear somebody else say, did you say something? Is God's inheritance. So this is God's inheritance. So this is, I think many times reading this fast, uh, a couple of things. First of all, it just turns into really good religious words. And so I just, oh, isn't that inspirational? And don't get the meaning. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's beautiful speech. But then the second pass is, oh, the inheritance is usually something I get. But that's not what this is either. This is God's inheritance. And if I'm to understand correctly, this is sort of like saying God's um, assets. It's his possessions, the things that are valuable to him. It's his portfolio. You see, when it, for the, if I, again, if I understand correctly, when somebody uses this word to refer to somebody's inheritance, they're talking about all the stuff you own. What is your inheritance? It's not the stuff you're going to get. It's all the stuff you have that's valuable that you can give to someone else. But this inheritance, this is the possession. It's the booty. It's the wealth. It's the portfolio of God. So that's whose it is and what it is is the next question. What is what makes God say he's so wealthy? What is God's super cool portfolio? What's the thing that is his inheritance? What is God's great possession? What do you think? us the saints isn't that weird all this time i would have if you the first pass was oh god's going to give us all the blessings of heaven that's our inheritance but what god regards as his great possession is you and i 
his people. Man. It's one thing to get an inheritance. How much cooler is it to be the inheritance of God? I think that's at least a way to look at it. It's interesting, exciting to think of. We are valuable. We have been purchased through the infinite and eternally valuable blood of the Lord Jesus. Okay? So I would want you to be encouraged. What a great way to finish. Father in heaven, thank you for valuing us so much that you would expend so much of your own personal energy, loss, uh, pain, whatever. we It's hard to describe how you could go through such things. But in the person of the Lord Jesus, you did. And you, you did that for us. You love us so much that you've bought us back. We are your inheritance. May we live that way. May we not... May we not fail to understand. Give us that strength that we need in order to comprehend how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for the first and maybe last edition of Wyoming Part and Bible Fellowship. Pardon the interruption. You're dismissed. <laughs>